We're continuing our series called The Life of Christ that's going to lead us right up to Easter. Today, I want us to look at something that you might not hear a lot of messages about. I've preached on this a number of times over uh, 30 years of ministry, but uh, um, you may or may not have heard a message on eternity. Today, we're going to talk about eternity, and this isn't getting off the subject of the life of Christ. This is something that Jesus talked very, very clearly about, so eternity. Um, There's a book that I got uh, back when I was in college, uh, generations and centuries ago, Um, and I have to admit that to this day, I have other favorite books. Uh, This is one of my favorites uh, still after all these years. Um, It's not a well-known book, but it's simply called Between the Dreaming and the Coming True, and the subtitle is The Road Home to God. I want to read some uh, excerpts from that book uh, now and then finish off the message with another one. But just uh, listen as I read a little bit of this book. It says, there is a dreamer dreaming us. One assumes that the dreamer is the same one who looked at the darkness and said, let there be light. The same dreamer delighted enough in that one act to, to, sorry, to choose to let there be light every 24 hours ever since, as though he can't get enough of it himself. Can it be that the one who imagined the sun rising over the dark edges of the world each day imagined me in the dreamer's own image, in my own place. Tell me, why did God send us here? Why didn't God just keep us instead of sending us here to wander through all this stuff we call our lives? Would God really run the risk of some of us not making it home again? What is the object of our exercise here? And what are our lives all about? Selfish creature that I am, what am I supposed to be about while I'm here? And he ends off this opening chapter by saying, what I fear now is that I will somehow miss what it is I am supposed to learn here. Something important enough that the dreamer dispatched me and the rest of us here to learn. What I fear now is that I will somehow miss the point of living here at all, living here between the dreaming and the coming true. We are eternal beings. We have eternity wired within us. Each and every one of us is created in the image of God himself. God is eternal, therefore the wiring is there. Well, near the end of Jesus' ministry, he gathered his disciples, and life was clipping along just great. And then one day he gathered them together and he dropped a bomb He basically said, I'm leaving you. I'm going away. And they freaked out. Maybe not freaked out, but definitely they were uh, riddled with worry and fear and anxiety. Take a look at John 14. Jesus has just told them, I'm leaving. I'm going away. They had assumed over three years of ministry together that he was going to build his kingdom right there, right in Jerusalem, right now. And what does he say? I'm going away. So in John 14, verse 1, he says to his disciples, don't let your hearts be troubled. And they're going, what? You're telling us not to be troubled? He says, trust in God and trust also in me. 
There is more than enough room in my father's home. If this were not so, would I have told you that I am going to prepare a place for you? So Jesus is revealing to them there's a plan in place. There's a bigger picture than what you are seeing right here and right now. And he continues and says, when everything is ready, I will come and get you. I'm going to come back so that you will always be with me where I am. And he continues on in subsequent teachings, he encourages them to be ready. I'm going away. I'm going to prepare a place for you to come and be with me. And in the meantime, I'm asking you and I'm encouraging you, be ready. So there's panic in each of the disciples, but there's also the promise. The promise from Jesus himself saying, I will come back. Turn over to Matthew 24. Guaranteed, they want more information. The disciples want more information. Jesus has told them, I'm going away, I'm going to come back. What is the obvious question? When? When? Um, have you ever told your kids you're going to Disneyland when they were kids? Okay, when? When? Is it today? Is it tomorrow? Is it next week? What do you mean I got to wait till Christmas? What do you mean I have to wait till next summer? Obvious questions that the disciples had was when? And they're pestering Jesus over and over and over again. Matthew 24, take a look at verse 3. His response is he's teaching them. Now he's on the Mount of Olives and he's teaching them. He says, and they say, tell us, Jesus, when will all this happen? What sign will signal your return, the end of this world? When is this going to happen, Jesus? What is the sign that we're to look for, or what are the signs? In verse 4, we read, Jesus told them, don't let anyone mislead you. For many will come in my name, claiming I am the Messiah. They will deceive many, and you will hear of wars and threats of wars, but don't panic. There it is again. Don't panic. Don't freak out. Don't worry. Yes, these things must take place. You notice that not only here, but all throughout Jesus' teachings, he never says when. He never answers the question when. But the question he does answer is this one, is how are we to live, and how are we to wait, and what is our attitude and our posture, and what uh, are we to do in this in-between time between the dreaming and the coming true? For me, growing up, I can't recall a time. I grew up in the church. I grew up, uh, you know, uh, I think first Sunday I was alive. I was sleeping in the pew in the front row. I can't recall a time that eternity wasn't something that I knew about or had been taught about or at least was considering even as I grew up, that became more and more acute to the point where Christ's return was something that was always on my mind. Um, and at times, for those of you who grew up in kind of the 60s and 70s and later on the 80s, you, you can understand that at times that anticipation was more fear-filled than comfort-filled. 
You know, I don't know if it was pastors or parents or, or other godly people who was like, you know, Jesus is coming back. It's almost like the boogeyman's coming back. And, and you know what? You better be prepared or else he's going to give you a whooping. You know, and, and we, there are movies out about all these scary things. And man, you'd go to bed at night just freaking out about Jesus' return. You know, it, it was just crazy, the stuff that was going on. The whole thing of why, not why, but when. The whole question, when is Jesus coming? I tell you, grade school, I felt like skipping classes because why do I need to go to class if Jesus is coming on Friday? You know, right? High school, I don't need to do that chemistry exam. Jesus is coming back, right? Or, or at least it was praying that Jesus was coming back before the biology exam or the science exam or whatever, or the finals. Or before the report cards got issued that you had to take home to your parents. Oh, Lord, would you please come back before Thursday? Please, right now, just come back right now. You know, there's this anticipation and longing. Well, this is the whole idea. When is this going to take place, Lord? When is this going to take place? I seriously didn't think I was going to make it to the point where I would get my license and drive a car. Just the imminent return of Jesus was so ingrained and wired in us. We are waiting for Jesus to return again. Uh, good, you know, goodness, I, I didn't think I was going to make it to 20. Talk about the year 2000? <laughs> no way. I'd be 35 then. Come on. Or 33. You know, it was just this understanding, the imminent return of Christ. We didn't know exactly when, but we knew it was going to be soon. And you see, all through all through Christian history. People have been trying to figure out when is this going to take place? How is this going to happen? So much so that there's, there's people who've come out with timelines of end times and what's going to happen. They're pastors. You can Google it and stuff. They're pastors with like murals on the, on the platform that go from, you know, when things start and, you know, kingdoms rising and falling and this will happen and the rapture and the tribulation and all this. And, and then and it's just, you're like, oh my goodness, Really? This is amazing, you know, and, and more often than not, all that figuring and all that surmising and all that is just, it brings this worry and fear and anxiety rather than what Jesus was saying all along. You won't know when. Sure, there'll be signs, sure there'll be, but the bottom line, what Jesus was saying to his disciples then and to us now isn't when, it's how are you to live between the dreaming and the coming true, how are you to live in this, what we call your life? You know, you could talk about blood moons and global warming and, and you know, the Soviet Union and the, the Iron Curtain and all these things that we went through, the Cold War and, and North Korea and governments and who's the Antichrist. And you could wear yourself out. You could have books, uh, fill a library about stuff like that. Do we have hints? Sure. Is there, uh, will there be signs? Sure. But the bottom line, people, is we are called to be prepared. And we're called to wait with expectation and anticipation. Jesus shows us and teaches us how to live, not when he'll come back. Instead of dread and helplessness and fear and anxiety, we're called to live in hope and peace. And true excitement. 
You know, there are two extremes, I guess, that, that we can get, and each, each are equally um, uh, um, I guess things that take us away further from God. One is, is just an over-preoccupation with the second coming to the point where, you know, there are people back in history and even people today who are so convinced that, that Jesus is coming today or tomorrow or next week that, you know, it's just sitting back and removing themselves from society and just waiting and doing nothing. Not living the way God has called them to live. The other extreme, so one is just this over-preoccupation with, with heaven and that, that, that earth just becomes insignificant. The other preoccupation is just that really Scripture, when it talks about eternity, when it talks about heaven and a new heaven and a new earth, that, that it's, it's really fictitious. It really doesn't exist. That, that in some ways it was, it was just you know, fiction. Each are equally dangerous and safe to say, like his disciples, Jesus doesn't tell us when, but he tells us how to live. And I believe in Matthew 24 and Matthew 25, Jesus tells a couple of stories here that gives us a perspective on how we're supposed to live in light of eternity and in light of his message that says, I'm going away and I will come back to take you to be with me. The first is at the end of of uh, uh, chapter 24 and moving into 25. And Jesus tells a, a wedding story uh, about uh, virgins who are waiting for a bridegroom to come. Well, it's important for us to re realize and recognize what uh, Jewish traditions were like. Jewish marriages and Jewish wedding ceremonies were uh, completely unlike those that we have in our Western culture today. You see, today, uh, um, typically, a, a, a groom will go to a, the bride's father and say, hey, may I marry your daughter? Um, uh, he'll get down on a knee and say, will you marry me? They'll set a date, and uh, they'll get married and live happily ever after. That's kind of the, the, the typical Western uh, engagements and proposals. Some of those engagements last a long time. Others are rather short. That's kind of what happens in, in our day and age. But back in Jesus' time, back in the Hebrew, where this is what would happen is, is it would be an arranged marriage where the father of the groom would, would make arrangements uh, with the family for the, basically the purchase of the bride. And that arrangement would be made and, and the, the, the son, the groom, would be betrothed to the, the bride, and that, that uh, son would go to the bride's house and they would be betrothed to one another. So the son would make the journey to the bride's house, the bride would, would uh, um, be betrothed to the bridegroom, and then the groom would go away, would go back to the father's house to prepare where, the, where they would live, where their residence would be. And that time would, would be about a year, 12 months, where that groom would go away, would go and prepare the home for one day when he'd go and get the bride. At the end of 12 months, it wasn't uh, like clockwork, it wasn't on a calendar, but at the instruction and the leading of the father of the groom, you notice it's not the groom that says, it's my time to go and get my bride. It's the father of the groom who indicates when it's time for the groom to go and get his bride. 
How's that in keeping consistent with Jesus not knowing the time of his return, but the Father knowing? And at the end of that time, at the end of that time, when the groom's father would say it's time, the groom would go back to the bride's house. And the bride, over those entire 12 months, was to be prepared and be ready because the bridegroom could come at any time. She was to make herself ready over those 12 months for the time when the bridegroom would come and take her back to the father's house to live and to dwell. That's where they were to live and and reside permanently. So with that story in light, with that uh, custom, the Jewish custom in light, take a look at Matthew 25, verse 1. Then the kingdom of heaven will be like ten bridesmaids who took their lamps and went to meet the bridegroom. So there's this anticipation of the bridegroom's return. Five of them were foolish and five were wise. The five who were foolish didn't take enough olive oil uh, for their lamps. But the other five were wise enough to take along extra oil. When the bridegroom was delayed, they all became drowsy and fell asleep. At midnight, they were roused by the shout, look, the bridegroom is coming, come out to meet him. And we're told that there were five who didn't have enough oil, their lamps were going out, and as the bridegroom was coming, they had to go and fetch more uh, lamp oil in order to light the way for the bridegroom. Well, while they were away, that's when the bridegroom came, and the five who were prepared were the five who received the bridegroom when he arrived. Story number one. Story number two, immediately following that, Jesus tells a parable of a, a, a rich man and three servants. Many of us know this story to the first servant. The, the master is going on a, on, a, on a trip. He's going away. And to the first servant, he gives five bags of gold and says, here, I want you to take care of this for me while I'm gone. To the second one, he gives two. He gives two bags of gold to them and says, I want you to look after these two bags of gold while I am gone. I will come back, but while I'm gone, I want you to take care of these. To the last one, he gave one. And as we know, as the story goes, Jesus says the, the, the one who was given five bags of gold went and put it to work. And, and when, the, when the, the landowner came, when the master came back, he presented not just the five, but the five additional. And he said, look, I put your, mon- your money to work. I put the gold to work. And here, there's 10 in return. And the master says, well done, good and faithful servant. To the one with two, the same thing happens. I put your money to work. I put your resources to work. And look, there's two to add to the two that you gave me. And to the one, the one who had been given one, he came back to the the master when the master returned from his trip. And he says, uh, here is the one that you gave me. I know you're a hard man. I know that you, you reap or you don't sow. And I knew, I knew that you had expectations and I was afraid. So I hid it and I buried it in the, in, in the dirt. And Jesus says, away from me. The, the, the landowner says, away from me. And this is a story that Jesus teaches right on the heels of the story of the bridegroom's return. Talking about a master, talking about the, the one who would go away and what was to take place during his absence. 
And I believe there are a number of lessons for us here, three lessons in particular that are helpful for us not to know the when of Christ's return, but to know how we are to live while we are waiting. And the first one is this, we're called to have an eternal perspective. An eternal perspective. Scripture says that that eternity is wired within each of us. Each and every one of us has eternity set in us. We know that our lives are not just from the day that we're born to the day we die. We are eternal beings. We are are spiritual beings. And God has wired us for eternity. Eternity is, is not fictional. It's not figurative. It's not allegorical. Heaven is real. It's a place where there will be no more sorrow, no more tears, no more struggles. There there will be a new heaven and a new earth. We will all have glorified bodies. And everyone over 50 said amen. This place will be made new again. All that is corrupted, all that has been tainted by sin will be made new again. Eternity is real. Life doesn't end when you stop breathing and your heart stops beating. You will live in eternity either in the presence of the Lord or outside the presence of the Lord. Every single one of us has eternity wired within us. And we're called to live like it. Have this perspective of eternity. And you see that that colors and it and it influences the way we live our lives. When we understand that that the trials and these, these burdens that we endure in this lifetime are only temporary. That one day we will reside in the presence of God for all of eternity. For those of us who have surrendered our lives to Christ, received the work of Christ on the cross, our lives are changed and transformed and one day we will live free from sin, free from suffering, free from sorrow, free from pain in His presence for all of eternity. And we're called to live in this life like we know it and like we mean it. So we're called to have an eternal perspective. The second lesson is we're called to have a posture of expectation. A posture of expectation. You ever seen these these little league uh, kids out there playing either softball or baseball? Okay. What are they doing in the outfield? Um, They're picking flowers. They're, they're, you know, throwing rocks, right? Uh, Any of us who have kids or, you know, grandkids or nieces or nephews or that, you know, or just like do yourself a favor, go up to the ball fields on Saturday and just watch the little kids. You know, they're, they're picking flowers or this. Well, the coaches have, have this one phrase and this one encouragement to every young ball player. Uh, do you know what it is? It, it, it's two words, and it's this, ready position. Ready position. They'll call it out from the, the dugout. Hey, Darren, ready position. And any kid who's been trained and gone through, you know, the practices and stuff, they know that that's the the cue to stop picking flowers and do this, right? They got the glove on the hand. If you're left-handed, it's just, you know, so, but it's ready. You're ready position. And then about three and a half nanoseconds later, they're picking up flowers again. And the coach says, ready position, ready position. Come on, ready position. Okay. All right. I'm ready. I'm ready. Well, it's almost like what Jesus is saying to us. 
saying to the church, hey, come on. I know, I know it's easy to get distracted. You know, a ceiling fan and, and, you know. It's easy to get distracted, but come on. Ready position. I'm coming back. I am. It's just like the, the kid in the outfield. The ball's coming your way. It's inevitable. Be ready. Be ready. Be ready. Be ready. Let's live like it. Let's be ready for Christ's return. What does Jesus say about the ten virgins, about the, those, uh, uh, the bridesmaids? He says, keep watch because you don't know the hour, the day of, of Christ's return. You don't know when the bridegroom is going to come. We need to be ready. And that's not a fear-invoking thing. That's not something to go, hey, hey, you just better or else God's going to wallop you over the head with a big stick. No, it's, it's you want this day and you're looking forward to this day because this day is going to be so wonderful. Think bride waiting for a groom. That's not, oh my goodness, when is he coming? No, it's like, when is he coming? Will he come today? I hope he comes today. If not today, I hope he comes tomorrow. It's not this, oh my goodness, when is that guy coming? It's this anticipation. It's this longing. And we're called to be ready. What does this look like? I believe this, this flavors how we live this life. How does this affect the way you, the way you work, the way you raise your family? Here's one. How does this affect how you invest, how you give, how you're generous? We talked about that a few weeks ago, didn't we? I, I believe this colors and this influences the way in, that we are intentional about sharing our faith with people around us who don't know Christ. This is, guys, this is, this is something that, that my life story is waiting for this one day. And let me tell you why. I remember growing up, it was like, you know, the whole thought of sharing my faith, it was, it was somehow couched. I don't know how we got there, but it was just couched in this obligation. It was like, oh my goodness. But you talk to any bride who's got a ring on her finger, she's not going like this and going, well, you want to hear about my bride, uh, my, my groom? Mm. No, I tell you, you, you got a bride and she's kind of, Oh, oh, um, yeah, oh, <laughs> amazing you asked. Yes, I am getting married. And oh, let me tell you, but the wedding's going to be like this, and the bride and groom is like this, and we're going to live here, and this is going to be, blah, 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 you know, it just keeps going and going and going and going and going, right? That's the excitement. That's this, just this anticipation that we're called to live with. And you see, this affects the way we live our lives. It, it can't help but to not affect the way we live our lives. And this isn't a, a life we live filled with anxiety and worry. and it, It's filled with peace and joy and contentment. And, and this resolve, this understanding that, you know what? One day, all this will make sense. One day, this waiting will be done with. And one day, Jesus is coming. And I can't wait. And it's not going to be horrific. It's not going to be it's just this, oh, like, you know, like the movies are portrayed it to be, Armageddon and that. And I understand that they're, they're, I've read Revelation and I understand the theology of end times. And, and yeah, that's for another sermon. But right now, Jesus is coming back. And we're encouraged and we're told how we are to live while he's gone. 
So a posture of expectation. And finally, I believe there's a commitment to persevere. A commitment to persevere. And let me just, just go back a bit and refer to the, those two stories that Jesus told. The first one was of the bridesmaids. There was just this waiting and expectation and anticipation. That comes with the perseverance. Can you imagine a bride waiting for her soon-to-be husband for a year? Waiting and waiting and waiting and longing. So Jesus talks about perseverance. The second story talked about being productive while we wait. I think that's essential. That's important. We've all been given gifts and talents and abilities. And, and Jesus uh, tells that the, the, the landowner gave those bags of gold according to their abilities. According to their gifts. God's given us gifts. God's given us opportunity to use those. So we're called to persevere. We're called to continue on. We're called to finish the race. I've run a, a number of marathons in my life and, and I tell you, about mile 21 and mile 22, you want to give up. There's just no ifs, ands, and buts. Even if this wants to go on, this does not. It just doesn't. The, the body is weak. The flesh isn't willing. It's hard to persevere. I understand that life is hard. Life is difficult. But the encouragement we're given in Scripture and the encouragement that Jesus gives is don't lose heart. I'm coming. I am true. I am reliable. You can trust me. And the longing and the waiting and this in-between time get really hard sometimes. Really hard. It's hard to persevere. It's hard to press on. It's hard to keep faith. It's hard to confess those doubts sometimes. But Jesus shows us and teaches us how we live. Paul, in 2 Corinthians, shares some wisdom. He says, We know that the one who raised the Lord Jesus from the dead will also raise us with Christ. He goes on to say, Therefore we do not lose heart. Though outwardly we are wasting away, yet inwardly we are being renewed day by day. For our light and momentary troubles. Any of you have momentary troubles? Or they're achieving for us an eternal glory. That's that prize that we talk about. That far outweighs them all. So what do we do? We fix our eyes on not what is seen, but what is unseen. Since what is temporary, since what is seen is temporary, and what is unseen is eternal. The Lord isn't slow in keeping His promise. He is faithful. Let me share just the end of this book. The author says, Once we start home toward God, which happens the minute we start actually, we simply do not ever turn around and head the other direction. There really is no other direction. And in that moment, when we feel as if we're so turned around that we'll never get home, somebody turns up and nudges us a couple of points to starboard, whatever direction that is. And suddenly, without being particularly conscious of it, or even faithful about it, we sense that we're headed toward God again, full blast. Like a stick that is finally 
stopped spinning around in, a, in an eddy in a river or has escaped a log or a rock that, it was hold, that was holding it back. We suddenly find ourselves slipping out from under the darkness beneath the bridge into the light, heading home, the only place where we've really been going. Then he ends off with this. An excerpt of this, this is in your bulletin. The journey between the dreaming and the coming true is a journey made on holy ground. It is a journey made through the silence and longing where if we will listen, we can hear the whisper of the dreamer echoing deep within us. Deep speaking to deep, right? Calling us to become what the dreamer sees when our names were first whispered. Saints who believe in and, pray and pay attention for and recognize the voice. Saints who live our lives in joy and confidence and hope rather than judgment and anxiety and desperation. Saints whose hours and days and lives are spent carrying people to the Christ. Lending each other a hand when one of us has fallen. Slipping along the river that brings joy to the heart of God. Carrying God's peace and love and presence and life to those we meet along the way. And I don't know why this book kills me. That's what, that is what we've been sent here to do. And we will. The dreamer's dreams will always come true. You know... As I sat in my office, and like Pastor Barry likes to say, the ugly cry. You know, the snotty, ugly cry. I just, I don't know what, it, what got into me as I was listening to that song and reading this book once again. It's this understanding that life is hard. Life isn't fair. Sin is sin. And the enemies come to steal, to kill, and to destroy. But the period and the sentence doesn't go there. Jesus says, I have come to give life, life to the full. So we've been given a promise. We've been given a mandate of how to live while we're in this between the dreaming and the coming true. Let's stand, all right? I invite you to bow your heads, close your eyes.